Welcome to episode 40 of the Muck Podcast, where we discuss the dark and sometimes weird true stories in American politics. I'm Tina Jaramillo. And I'm Hillary Doherty. Hillary, anything new going on? Let me ask you a question. Because oh. I'm 42, proudly. Yes. Very proudly will tell you that I'm 42. I still get pimples oh. <laughs> on my face. <laughs> and I started to get a pimple the other day and I was like, when in the fuck is this going to end? And when it's not like it all the time. Yes. But it's like every once in a while. And I'm like this. And now I'm already like my daughter's getting to the age where I'm like, you have to wash your face every day. Yes. She's getting little, little pimples. Like <gasps> my son too, like a little tiny, he had it's a little always, pimple. And I was like, oh, yes. Yes. So I'm like, you have to wash your face every night. You got to keep your face clean. You got to use yeah. this face wash. Just keep the greasy face clean, right? Yes. And it's not crazy, but it's enough. And I'm like, I'm not though 11. Like I'm 42. Yes. I'm like, when is this going to end? All no, right. I still, I still get them too. It's insane. It's insane. It's not fun. It's not fun. And um, I feel really stupid. Like I'm still trying to like cover up. I'm pre- putting makeup on to like cover up a pimple. It's so dumb. And by the way, can the periods also stop? Uh, Are we done with this now, please? Can we please end I'm, this? I'm so over them. Like I send a letter to, to whoever, Mother Nature, <laughs> the end. overnight delivery. We are done now. You yes. can stop. We can end this process now. Oh Thank my God. you. Well, really, I think what I'm hating more is the emotional yes i am like an emotional mess and and let me tell you something else i never was like that but i will start crying over nothing yes and i'm like i don't know why i'm so upset you know and then two days later i get my period and i'm like i feel so dumb because it was my body was like working against me right yes it tricked me into yes. actually thinking I give a fuck about something. I care no, about something. you do care about something. It's letting all the, but it's, it heightens it. It heightens yes. everything. There's this dumb. And I'm so moody. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. But I'm so, um, there's this, uh, yeah, it's PMSing and I've never had that kind of like, maybe I don't think I have, but, uh, there's no, a I movie have. on, um, Amazon called, Oh, for F's sake. Now I got to look it up. But it's this like really cheesy teenager like um, movie. Have you seen the show? I think it's an Amazon show and it's called it looks like Pen 15 for its penis. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's so funny. And it's these two women. The actors are like in their 30s and they play middle school students. And it's like so it's and they're so ridiculously middle school angsty but they're adult women playing these roles and it's so That's funny it's funny. so that weird. sounds funny it, it's just a very strange show and what where is it where do you see it oh i don't know i want to say it's like hulu or amazon okay so the movie i'm talking about is called chemical hearts oh, and no. it's like goofy che- first of all the guy in it is so fucking cute oh, like who not is it? Oh, damn it now I gotta no, i'm sorry <laughs> Hold on. I've got it right here. He's so damn cute. And um, he's he's also in he was also in the show. um, He was also in that show. It's on uh, HBO with the teenagers. It's oh, Euphoria. Oh, Euphoria. Just so scary. Which is to me as a parent, like really scary. Um, His name's Austin Abrams. And he looks he's probably 40 and he plays a teenager. But he's got this like old soul like yeah look to him he's so cute (laughs) and so that's really why i watched it because i saw that he was the person in it but um anyway 
all I'm saying is I was very much crying throughout this movie. <laughs> like the next day got my period. And, I was and you're like, like what's going yeah, on? Yeah, because I'm, I'm sure if I watched it right now, I'd be like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my Aww. life. That should be, I, I wonder if that should be a thing where having people watch movies mm. during PMS and then post PMS and then seeing, do you still like the movie? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Oh my God. We'll I do know. a study. So you're first. I am. Okay. Today, mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you the story of former New York State Supreme Court Justice Joseph Force Crater. Oh my, I have no idea what this is. Oh Joseph my Crater served as justice for the New York Supreme Court for New York County, but when he failed to return home from a trip to the city, an investigation was launched into his supremely suspicious disappearance. Whoa. I'm so excited about this. And I have to say, I heard about this listening to... I know what you're going to tell me. It's a mob story, right? Well, is kind it, of. Is it's it a not, Sopranos? Well, I heard of it on Talking Sopranos. <laughs> Michael Imperioli mentioned it. And I was like, I don't, I don't know about this person. He like said something in passing. Yeah. And then I looked it up and I was like... Oh, what a cool little story that I've never heard of. So, oh my goodness. Our story takes place in 1930. Whoa. In New York City. And I think, of course, of the stock market crash of 29 and the images of like the bread lines in New York mm. and all of that. But Crater, he didn't seem too impacted by um, the depression. He was this dapper. That was the word they use in a lot of articles dapper. He was a dapper judge. He lived on Fifth Avenue. Uh, he stood about six feet tall, weighed 200 pounds, and he really enjoyed what the city had to offer. And in fact, uh, Gendar and Standora of the Seattle Times note that he earned the moniker Good Time Joe <laughs> because of how much he enjoyed the nightlife, dancing, and the ladies. So wow. he had this little reputation. Yeah. So just to give you a little bit of background, uh, according to History.com, Crater was a first-generation Irish-American born in Pennsylvania who, after graduating from law school, made his way to New York, and he hustled to become a very successful lawyer. And like any shrewd ladder climber, he made some political connections along the way. And those connections ultimately led to then-New York governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt mm. to appoint him judge of the New York Supreme Court. Wow. And History.com also pointed out that his reputation already at that time when he got that appointment faced some scrutiny because the married judge allegedly liked to hang out with the showgirls and there were also rumblings that he may have paid for his position on the court. Whoa. So there's this little shady kind of bit about him. So on, well, this is what happened on August 3rd, about a month prior to his disappearance, Crater was mm -hmm. in Maine hanging out with his wife, like they had like a summer home oh, or whatever. Okay. He's married. I married mm -hmm. kids and he's there. And um, he leaves Maine to go back to New York. And Jay Mater of the New York Daily News reports that according to Crater's wife, he got a phone call and he told her, I got some business in the city. I'll be back, you know, see you later. And he left them behind. So there's the thought that the people of New York probably assumed he went back. If they didn't see him, he probably went back to Maine. And the wife in Maine is like, well, maybe he's taking a little longer on this trip. But she's like trying to call him and can't really reach him. Mm. It's 1930. It's not like today where you can yeah, text somebody like, or yeah, get yeah, in yeah. touch with someone a little right. bit quicker. So no one really does much. 
And on August 13th, about 10 days after he left Maine, his wife starts calling people in New York to try to find out, like, where is he? I didn't think he was going to be gone this long or whatever it was, and just starts calling around. And nothing. Like, people are like, well, haven't seen him, haven't seen him. And no one really still, like, doesn't really flip out about him not being around until he fails to show up for court when it reopens on August 25th. Then people are like, okay, wait, like there's something is up because now his wife hasn't seen him. We haven't seen him. He doesn't show up to court. But now like this whole month has gone by, Mm -hmm. which is a long time when someone's gone missing to like bring the cops in and whatnot. So here's where things get a little bit strange. History.com notes that his law clerk saw him at the office on August 6th. But here's the thing. He allegedly was destroying a bunch of records moved some files to his apartment on Fifth Avenue, and he arranged to take out $5,000 from the bank. And a Seattle Times article by Jen Deere and Standora further note that he also took about $20,000 in campaign funds, which would come to about, like those two funds together, would come to about $387,575 in today's money. Jeez. That's a lot of money to like take. So that's a little suspicious, right? Where's the money? What did he need it for? What's going on? So in addition to the law clerk's account, some friends revealed to the police that on the same night, right, the same evening of the 6th that he was seen in his office, he bought a ticket to a Broadway show and he went to dinner at Billy Haas's Chop House, which I love. I don't know why Mm -hmm. I like the name of that. Billy (laughs) Haas's Chop House with a friend and one Sally Ritz, who was Crater's showgirl mistress. And Oragumar for those Italians out there. <laughs> so he's with her and various accounts say that he left the restaurant alone and either hailed a cab or walked down the street. Like there's two, some people are like, no, he hailed a cab. We saw him got in the cab. Other people say, no, he walked down the street. But otherwise, like never seen again. Wow. Like that was it, like gone. So finally, now around September 3rd, this investigation begins And the story hits the papers and it becomes like this huge, everybody's talking about like, where is Judge Crater? But because of his reputation with women and the information from the law clerk, people think he either skipped town or was killed or that there was, you know, there's all of these rumors. And people start saying that they see him sort of all of these different places, these sightings. I love that. Yeah. And all of that. So in January of 1931 now. So now a few months have passed. They still haven't found him or heard anything about him. A meander of the New York Daily News notes that Crater's wife finds insurance policies for about $30,000 back then and a little over $6,000 in cash in envelopes in their apartment in New York and Crater's will. And Frederick Rasmussen of the Baltimore Sun reported that Crater left a note with the envelopes that stated, quote, I am very weary. Love, Joe. So did he knowingly leave the insurance in case something happened to him? Did he commit suicide? Did he deliberately disappear knowing that murder or death or something would be implied? So he like hooks his wife up with this money. Did he take off to go live a new life? Mm. Like, you know, everyone's it's adds yeah. to the mystery. Like what what's going on? Yeah. So eventually in 1939, His wife had Judge Crater declared legally dead. And 1979 is when the New York uh, Police Department finally closed the case. 
And throughout the years, the police kept saying things like there's not enough evidence to declare whether he's alive or dead. Like there's no, we, we just don't know. Right. And we don't know if foul play was involved. He's just gone. So some possibilities. Of course, there's the rumors. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that we don't know? We still don't know. Oh, my God. I, I thought you were going to tell me. And then in 1985, they found the bones. Well, well, okay. well. There <laughs> yeah, are so, so, gonna... so, so, quote. So okay. there is some, some possibilities. There Let's... are some possibilities. Okay. So, of course, one of them is he took off to go start a new life and mm-hmm. kind of escape some things. Um, well, this one, I think, is probably the most accurate of what could have happened to him. The Seattle Times reported that in 2005, a woman, Ferrucci Good, passed away. Okay. And her family, and I love this so much, her family finds a letter in her safety deposit box that said, do not open until my death. Oh, Can my you imagine? God. I'm like, what a letter. Like someone, I hope someone listening, if, if anyone had a letter like this, please like send us an email. I don't know. I love this thing. Like don't open until my death. Yes. And like that's a family member and you're like, oh, what could this mean? You know? Oh my God. This postmortem confession. Yes. Uh, yes. Oh my God. Okay, so the letter stated that her husband, Robert Good, on his deathbed, had confessed to her where folks could find Crater's body. <gasps> she also revealed that he implicated a Frank Burns, who was a New York cab driver, as Crater's murderer. Okay. So imagine finding this kind of letter like tied to this like historic disappearance oh, in your mother's safety deposit box. No. It would be like... What in the hell? So a couple of other sites, including the New York Post, reveal that not only was Burns, the cab driver, involved, but so was Good. And a cop named Charles Burns, who some accounts say is perhaps brother to that cab driver, and that they were all involved, and allegedly they offed him and buried him under part of the Coney Island boardwalk. And that area, so this is in 2005, but in 1950, right. that part of the boardwalk was dug up to um, construct the New York Aquarium. Mm. And at the time, they did find skeletal remains when they were doing it. And it wasn't just, um, I think it was a couple of bodies, like maybe just a oh few people were burying people under the boardwalk. Yeah. Uh, but back then, they couldn't do DNA testing or any of this stuff. And the New York Post article I read did say that they were planning on trying to test those but I couldn't find anything on whether or not they could confirm it, it was, was confirmed. So like, I'm assuming that they probably couldn't confirm it. Cause I feel like that would have been a huge, yeah. there would have been an article, but no explanation as to why this cab driver would want well, to kill him. There is. So a couple other possibilities. Okay. One is that his showgirl girlfriend uh-huh. uh, that he was out with had a mobster boyfriend mm. and that the mobster's boyfriend, uh, the mobster boyfriend may have had him off. Okay. So that's another possibility. Yes. And then Seattle times also explains that his involvement in Tammany hall could have led to his murder or his decision to disappear as well. So I'm hoping to cover Tammany hall, like in another episode, cause it's like a big thing. Okay. But it basically was this political machine that dominated New York politics Democratic Party, it was rife with cronyism. It was basically putting friends and associates into positions for which they're clearly not qualified. And mm. I feel like just look at Trump's appointments if you want to understand what cronyism is, <laughs> because there's a lot of that happening. But that Tammany Hall scandal was about to break right before he disappeared. Mm. So some people think either he was killed because of like what he knew with Tammany Hall or 
that he was involved in Tammany Hall and he was like, I'm out and I'm going to go start this new life. The thing that, that I, I don't agree with, like, I'm leaving, is that he worked so hard yeah. to get where he, I mean, even if he wasn't Supreme Court, he was a lawyer, like he was yes. already had a life set up for himself. He was enjoying his life. Why would he just leave that unless, you know what I unless mean? Unless he was afraid of jail or, I guess. or people were after, who knows? I guess. It just seems like if somebody's enjoying that life that much, they're not going to leave that quickly. Right. I don't know. Unless they're being threatened, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So Meander of the New York Daily News lists a couple of more possibilities. One, um, there was allegedly information suggesting that he had uh, hightailed it to the West Indies with one of the showgirls <laughs> to start over. <laughs> Um, another was that he lambed it to the Canadian border to hide out in a hunting lodge because people were after him. Mm. And another possibility that was kicked around was either a criminal upset with a ruling. Cause remember he was a judge, right? So some people were like, well, maybe there was a criminal who was upset about how he ruled on something. And so they killed him, which we know, I mean, with judges that yeah, they possible, don't right? like to publish their information because mm -hmm. if there's someone upset with a conviction right. or whatever, or, or that it was just some random act of violence and mm. who like just happened to happen. And all of these is just coincidental that right. he was involved in Tammany Hall or that his girlfriend had a mobster boyfriend or whatever it was. Too many options. It's crazy. Yeah. So um, I thought this was interesting is that uh, Frederick Rasmussen of the Baltimore Sun reported that his wife, up until her death, would visit a bar in Greenwich Village on the anniversary of his disappearance, order two drinks. She'd lift a glass and say, good luck, Joe, wherever you are, and, like, take the shot. And, like, that was, like, her annual thing. Wow. Isn't that wild that he did? It's so, spooky, man. It's so spooky. So the aftermath, he's never seen again. The mystery still today is unsolved, which wow. I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, his disappearance, though, which I thought was kind of funny, was uh, became the butt of jokes at the time and like these stand-ups you know because there was like more of like dinner theater whatever and like these guys on stage would um have these one-liners and one that i saw a lot was like judge crater call your office like people are looking for you kind of thing <laughs> and they would um and if someone like disappeared or like took off for a while they would go oh he's just pulling a crater like that was <laughs> just like what they would say yeah so um it, people more I looked at it as like this funny thing rather than like this tragic thing. Like right. it became like a joke. Oh, you're just pulling a crater. He just took off. Like that's how they kind of viewed it. Wow. So I wanted to talk about the showgirls like really quickly because there were three showgirls kind of like that he was tied to. And that first one was that Sally Ritz. Um, and she left town pretty quickly after mm. Crater's disappearance. And she wound up in Youngstown, Ohio. And remember, Youngstown yes, is a mob, mob. kind of little yes, town. You did the story about Youngstown. Yes. So I'm just wondering if there's a connection. Like she maybe she knew like her boyfriend did this and she's like, I'm going to get out, get away from the heat a little bit. Mm. But police reportedly um, questioned her several, several times and it led nowhere. Wow. So another one, uh, there was a woman, June Bryce. And this was uh, another girl who witnesses said spoke to Crater around the time he disappeared. And she was suspected of perhaps being involved in a scheme to blackmail Crater. And uh, Maida reported that in 1948, cops visited a mental institution to interview her. Mm. But it went nowhere because her mental health was so deteriorated that they couldn't get any information out. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
So there, so that was another possibility that he was being blackmailed or she was involved in that. And, you know, maybe it went bad. And then a Vivian Gordon who worked as a high end sex worker may have had some knowledge of Crater's disappearance because of some other issues she, at the time, had lost custody of her 16-year-old daughter, and she decided to speak to the cops and agreed to testify because she wanted to try to get her daughter back. So she's like, I'll testify into their inquiry into public corruption, which, according to um, Wikimedia, or Wikipedia, sorry, started as a result of Crater's disappearance. So mm. she's like, I'll give you some insight. But five days after that, she was found murdered. Oh! <gasps> So, like, maybe there was something into this public corruption scandal and she was going to give the dirt. This is the Tammany Hall thing or? It it was connected probably to Tammany Hall. Wow. Crazy, right? So a couple points of interest. uh, According to Jamie Ander, Crater, when he went missing, a ton of showgirls start coming forward saying how they hooked up with him. So imagine his wife at the time. Oh my God, this poor woman. She's probably vacillating between like, I want to kill him and like worrying that like somehow yes. he's been killed. Yes. And I, it would be awful. Yeah. Um, and the, the meander also wrote that in 1964, a psychic allegedly received visits from Crater and got cops to dig up like a bunch of spots in Yonkers oh Lord as to mercy. where he may have been buried. Uh, there was a book written about all of this called The Man Who Never Returned by Peter Quinn. And in that book, he posits what he believes happened to uh, Crater. And that's it. That's the story of the, Jeez. and he was referred to as the missingest man of New York. Wow. Judge Joseph Crater. Well, the thing that's weird too, is that everybody even involved is weird. Like there's Everything. all kinds of yeah, shitty, there's... crappy things happening to everybody involved. It's yes. so bizarre. It's crazy, right? What do you think happened? I think, I think he, it seems like he's involved with mobsters. It seems like he's involved in political corruption. And I think that he got involved with the wrong person Yeah, because that phone call with the wife was like, I got to go take care of some things with these guys. So maybe, you know, maybe he was being black, but he takes out all this money. So I think he, I think they offed him. And then that one article I read because he's over by the uh, supposedly buried under that aquarium that he's sleeping with. He's literally sleeping with the fishes. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. Oh, my God. <laughs> Tina, good one. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was an, an, a story I never heard of. No, I've so, never heard of it either. Yeah, it was interesting. It's a New York story, I guess. Yes. Okay. Ooh. Today, I am going to talk about former general, four-star general, Ooh. David Petraeus. <gasps> yes. Oh, I love, I love going second. Oh, he's still. Because I get to settle in. Obviously, a, he retired a four-star general, but he's right. not a, he's not a general anymore. But the New York Times described him as, quote, the best known military commander of his generation. Mm. That's the one thing about this guy is like, you know, whether you're pro or anti-military, whatever your deal is with the military, like there are minds that are involved in oh it God. that are so brilliant. And this is one you of those ha- people. You have to be. Yes. And he was one of these guys who really knew what he was doing. Uh, takes a, he, They give him a lot of credit for turning things around in Iraq, although I don't know how long that happened, you know, how long yeah. the good times started happening in, in Iraq. But after we got in there, everything turned bad quickly. And, uh, and he was he was one of those people who had been who was trying to ch- turn things around there. And I don't know if I really agree with the way he was doing it, but yes. okay. So anyway, <laughs> there's really great PBS Frontline um, episodes 
there was one called Losing Iraq. I think it was the last one they did. Um, and it was really, really good. And it talks about the insurgency and everything. And then it talks about when Obama was elected and how Obama was like, you know, he ran on like, we're done. Yeah. Get out. We're getting out. When I get elected, we're getting out of Iraq. And people, right. you got to remember, were like, hated that we were there. Like, George W. Bush brought us to this place. We never should have been there. No. And so here's, what are you going to run on? We shouldn't have been there. Yeah. And so what yeah. are we going to run on? We're going to take, we're going to leave Iraq. Right. But what's it's not as easy as it's not easy just pulling people out, right. unfortunately. But yeah. that that's what he wanted. So that was like within the first like 60 days of being in office, Obama's like, I don't want to hear about it. Get them out. And there's American, you know, people working there um, as in from like the State Department and places like that, that were trying to set up this government there, trying to help them that that Prime Minister Maliki yeah. put together something that was a Sunni and Shiite working together. Anyway, they start pulling troops out and pulling people out and everybody's warning them against this. We can't do this. This new administration, like this is not a good idea. We need more time here. We need to help them. And as soon as we start to leave that, um, Maliki starts like going after the Sunnis, all the Sunni citizens. And it was just a fucking mess. It was a mess. mess. Anyway, a lot of hard work, like kind of gone down the drain there, but (laughs) it's terrible. It's terrible. And then we just had 9-11 on Friday. Um, Yeah and the anniversary and so both my kids were in class learning about it. i don't know if your kids uh got to hear about 9 11 but they it's yes. very difficult my son's listening to this video a news cycle video with the class and the kids are asking like after the end like these amazing questions of like where they learn how to fly the planes you know did it like asking really amazing questions about what had happened and i'm over at my desk like crying Right. Aww. Because it's like if you were there, if you, not there, but like if you were here uh, yes. at an age where you could understand what was going on, it's it is so sad and, and terrifying, like what happened that day. And then my daughter came in and her teacher for world history, they went through a whole thing about it. And she said he was getting teary eyed, you know, and Aww. I was like, yeah, because as adults, you know, it's something we're never going to forget, you know, yeah. how sad and awful that day was. Yeah, it was it was pretty sad. And. Yeah, my kids, so my son, my oldest, is really into history. So he's read, mm. he, like on his own, had read a, a whole a book on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, he was trying to explain to my younger son, and he's like, can you believe he just doesn't know anything about this? And I'm like, well, you know, you've read all these books, and he hasn't, So, and he's nine, so give him a little slack that yeah. he doesn't know all the details like you. Yeah. <laughs> he was like trying to shame him. Yeah. And um. So yeah, so he, his teacher had taught, my youngest son's teacher had talked about it. And then my older son was like, let me tell you, you know, and was trying to give him more information. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's awful. And they don't show them the videos of the planes going in. Oh, thank goodness. I, I, I understand. I, I get that. But I also feel like they don't understand the impact of like, this was used as a weapon. You know what I mean? Not that I want them to see that video, yeah. but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like when we saw the first plane, it was like, oh, there's a plane. Oh my God, this is it a was terrible an accident. accident. Yeah. And the second plane hits and it. Was, my husband and I were talking about it yesterday where it was just like confusing of like, wait a minute, what the what's, fuck is going on going right on? now? You know? Yeah. Oh God. Anyway. I know. I was so, working, I was working at a college campus and I remember they were like, uh, I had just arrived to work early mm-hmm. and they were like, get, get out. We, they, everything was getting shut down. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, they were talking, there was a plane over, remember near Pittsburgh. Yes. And my brother traveled a lot. And I remember mm-hmm. I was like trying to call him, but this was like, I'm on the payphone. Oh my you know? God. Cause it was, I didn't have a yeah. cell phone then. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was just, at work. I was listen- working and listening to Howard Stern. 
and how yes, Stern I listened it to Stern too. Yeah. I remember listening that and he, day. He talked about the first. He's talking the whole thing through, oh and God. the guy who was it was like giving him. He was on the phone with one of his people that were always on the show. Giving and he, that guy was giving like all the details oh, from I his perspective. That. Yeah. Oh, I forget who it was. Oh my God. Anyway. I go down a rabbit hole when it comes to Iraq. Like the, I, I've watched all of those front lines. It's really, really good. But uh, the military mindset is not something that I understand. I don't get it. I know how important it is, how important it is to have good, smart people there. Um, and there's codes that they live by. And a lot of these things is what breaks down with David Petraeus after four decades, you yeah. know, an entire lifetime he dedicated to service. And then things just go a little crazy. So well, we shouldn't have been there. That wasn't where. Yeah. I'm going to get a little bit thing. into Iraq, yeah. but not, not a whole thing because it's yeah. way too much. But it's so much. That's yeah. like a whole series. It is. <laughs> We'd have to it do. is. It is. It's a lot. Um, okay. So David Petraeus was born on in Cornwall on Hudson, New York, the son of Miriam Sweet, a librarian, and Sixtus Petraeus, a Dutch sea captain from the Netherlands. Wow. His mother was American and a resident of Brooklyn, New York. His father had sailed to the United States from the Netherlands at the start of the World War II. Sixtus, Sixtus Petraeus commanded a liberty ship for the U.S. For the, during the duration of World War II. The family moved after the war, settling in Cornwall and Hudson, where David Petraeus grew up and graduated from Cornwall Central High School in 1970. He went on to the United States Military Academy at West Point. Petraeus was on the intercollegiate soccer and ski teams, was ca- cadet captain of the brigade, brigade staff, and was a, quote, distinguished ca- cadet academically, graduating the top 5% of his class in 1974. In the class yearbook, Petraeus was remembered as always going in, going forward in sports, academics, leadership, and even his social life. <laughs> so while a cadet, Petraeus started dating the daughter of Army General William Knowlton, um, who was also a West Point superintendent at the time, and he started dating his daughter, um, Holly. Two months after Petraeus graduated, they got married, and Holly is like... <laughs> This amazing woman, right? So Holly is a mul- is multilingual. She's a national what? merit scholar in high school. She graduated summa cum laude from Dickinson College, and they have a son and a daughter. There's really, I have a great picture of them when they when he graduated West Point, and it looks like this adorable couple in the 70s. You know, yeah. she's got that long hair parted in the middle. Very cute. After he graduated in 1974, he earned the General George C. Marshall Award as a top graduate of the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College class of 1983 at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, receiving a Bachelor of Science degree in military science. He subsequently earned a master's in public administration in 1985 and a PhD in international relations in 1987 from Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Mm. Affairs. So super smart, academic guy with this military mind, right? At the time, he also served as an assistant professor of international relations at the U.S. Military Academy from 1985 to 1987. So we're going to jump forward because he did a lot in the military. But from late 2005 to 2007, he served as the commanding general of Fort Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and the U.S. Army Combined Arms Center that was located there. Um, As commander of the CAC, Petraeus was responsible for oversight of the command and general staff, college, and 17 other school centers and training programs as well as well as for developing the Army's doctrinal ma- manuals, training the Army's officers, and supervising the Army Center for the collection of lessons learned. During his time at CAC, Petraeus and Marine Lieutenant General James Mattis jointly oversaw the publication publication of feed, fan, 
field manual 3-24 called Counterinsurgency, Ooh. the body of which was written by an extraordinarily diverse group of military officers, academics, human rights activists, and journalists who had been assembled by Petraeus and Mattis. Additionally, at both Fort Leavenworth and throughout the military schools and training programs, Petraeus integrated the study of counterinsurgency into lesson plans and training exercises. In recognition, recognition of the fact that soldiers in Iraq often perform duties far different from those for which they were trained, Petraeus also stressed the importance of teaching soldiers how to think as well as how to fight and the need to foster flexibility and adaptability in leaders. Petraeus called this change the most significant part of the surge, saying in 2016, wow. quote, the surge that mattered most was the surge of ideas. It was the change of strategy, and in many respects, this represented quite a significant change in, to what it was we were doing prior to the surge, right? Because, I mean, this, yeah, this idea of thinking yes. and not just being, yes. you know, the one Not just shooting, mindset. bomb, right. bomb, bomb, right. bomb. It's like getting in there. Fixing and understanding, yeah, yeah, understanding the mindset of the people who lived in that country. Right. I mean, the thing that I just always struggle with, though, Mm -hmm. is why do we as a country feel the need to go into another country and fix what's wrong? Right. You know what I mean? Because if if someone was coming here to do that, we'd have a problem. Right. And I understand, like it's democracy and all of that, but there's always these ulterior motives, especially with Iraq, that we know. Right. You know, so I struggle with that. There's a vacuum of leadership. I mean, within hours of the us coming in and then pulling that statue down of Saddam Hussein, within hours there was looting right. and burning of buildings. And it was a nightmare. That's when it started. This whole shitstorm started. And they didn't even prepare for what was, what was happening. Right. And how all these little, I want to say little gangs almost started. You know, where they were fighting each other and then the army's trying to keep them for, it was just a fucking nightmare. Yeah, and it's like, well, what, what are, I, I don't know. Yeah. It, it just seems like, when does it become overstepping our bounds? Right. I know. know. Yeah. So, okay. Sorry. So let me start a little bit with, so that's where he was uh, when he was, um, you know, teaching when he came back from Iraq. But let me right. just start with Iraq. So in 2003, Petraeus, then a major general, saw combat for the first time when he commanded the 101st Airborne Division during the V Corps drive to Baghdad. So remember, Dang. like, he had never been, he had no. only learned about war. And, like, you know, right, in right. 1974, there was nothing, he wasn't going anywhere. So this is the right. first, like, active war that he was going to go to. In a campaign chronicled in detail by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Rick Atkinson of the Washington Post in the book called um, In the Company of Soldiers, Petraeus led his division through fierce fighting south of Baghdad in Karbala, Hila, and Najaf. Nahif, probably not. I'm going to say that's how you say it. Following the fall of Baghdad, the division conducted the longest hail-borne assault on record in order to Mm. reach Nivea, uh, where it would spend much of 2003. There is so much to get into and um, with Iraq, so I'm just jumping around here, but I think it's safe to say that his efforts with the, with the insurgency or the surge, it did help in bringing parts of the country back to normalcy um, after the U.S. invaded it. But I know there was a lot more problems like that still, in, you know, are going on there. Right. Um, but he earned his stripes there, right? Like people knew who he was as far as like he wasn't so much an academic, but the planning and the strategy. Now he's this full on like he knows what he's doing. Right, he's a leader. Yeah. <clears throat> so when the 101st Airborne returned to the U.S. in June 2004, Petraeus was promoted to lieutenant general and became the first commander of the Multinational Security Transition Command in Iraq. 
This newly created command had responsibility for training, equipping, and mentoring Iraq's growing army, police, and other security forces, as well as developing Iraq's security institutions and building associated infrastructure such as training bases, police stations, and border forts. So he's working to, you know, create a government there, a new civilization almost, right? Like it's a new world. That's what he's working to do in Iraq. And it was really, really important that someone like him do that and not someone who only knew about bombing and right. fighting you i know? know and i'm still gonna say yes why I, I do know. we have to be the ones to dictate I know. to other people how they have to run their country i hear you okay so on october 31st 2008 petraeus assumed command of the united states central command headquartered in tampa florida petraeus was responsible for u.s operations in 20 countries spreading from egypt to pakistan including operation Iraqi freedom and enduring freedom during his time at CENTCOM. I know your face when I said Iraqi freedom. (laughs) During his time at CENTCOM, Petraeus advocated that countering the terrorist threats in the CENTCOM region requires requires more than just counterterrorism forces demanding instead whole of government's comprehensive approaches akin to those of counterinsurgency. One of his closest colleagues said that Petraeus knew that defeating an insurgency required living among the people, convincing them that we were better than the insurgents, which is the the little gangs, right? Right. He said, quote, you can't kill them all. You can't kill your way out of an insurgency. You have to find other kinds of ammunition, and it's not always a bullet, end quote. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about another person that's going to be in this Uh scandal Uh because I think it's really important to talk about this woman in the way that she deserves, which isn't just a side note in in General Petraeus' story. She's a real person who's brilliant on her own and got involved with him. But like, I think it's really, I want to talk about her because I think she's got an incredible resume, just as incredible as his, if, if you, if you, if you uh, will. Ooh, but cool. so Paula Broadwell, Paula oh. Broadwell graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1995 with a Bachelor of Science degree in engineering and political geography. She earned a Master of Arts degree at inter- in international security from the University of Denver School of International Studies in 2006. She earned a Master of Public Administration degree from John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard university in 2008 broadwell was a research associate in the kennedy school center for public leadership fellows a team a term member at the council of foreign relations a distinguished young leader in the french american french america foundation and american council on germany and national finalist in the white house fellows program she was elected as the harvard student representative to the academy of achievement in 2006 During this time, she worked at the Fletcher School at Tufts University as a deputy director of the Jebson Center on Counterterrorism. In 2008, she's entered the Ph.D. program at the Department of War Studies at King's College in London. So she's young, though. She's young. Yeah. Yeah, younger. She's probably a little bit older. Maybe she's our age. Well, she graduated college in 95. Yeah. Yeah. So she's she's younger than him. Yeah, Yeah. 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 Um, Broadwell served in the United States Army and the United States Army Reserve as a military intelligence officer on four different continents, serving in the disciplines of electronic warfare, document uh, exploitation, counterterrorism analysis and operations, and human intelligence work. She rose to the rank of lieutenant colonel in the reserve as of August 2012. Broadwell applied for a position with the FBI in 2001, passing the polygraph, academic and life experience requirements. A retired FBI agent quoted by the Daily Beast has suggested that the FBI would have been impressed with her qualifications and experience. Mm. The FBI offered her a job, but Broadwell decided instead to go to Harvard University. Broadwell met Petraeus in 2006 when he was a speaker at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. 
according to the Charlotte Observer, she told him about her research interest after he spoke at the university. He handed her his card and offered his help. She began a doctoral dissertation that included a case study of his leadership with Petraeus fully cooperating. Broadwell then co-authored a biography of Petraeus called All In the Education of General David Petraeus with Vernon Loeb that was published in January 2012. Paula is married to Dr. Scott Broadwell, an interventional radiologist um, who graduated from George Washington University. They reside in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, and they have two sons. Um, They met in 2000 when they were both active duty U.S. Army captains. Um, Scott was a physician and commander of the Mannheim Military Clinic in Germany. And Paula, of course, was there completing her military intelligence deployment. So here we are. (laughs) <laughs> I am like dying to know like what uh, what were these two up to? And I wrote a lot. I, I included a lot about to? them because I feel like it's important to remember that, you know, I was talking about this with my husband yesterday. I'm like, I just don't, you know, understand like are we as a country so um, prude that we don't allow people to uh, step outside their marriage? Like they, we have to take jobs away from them. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't Uh-oh. know. Like, I'm in a place where I'm just Ooh. like... People, we know this is something that happens. Um, yeah. oh, I don't know. Like, oh, you're saying fallout from. Yeah. I mean, other things happen here, which right. is why it, there was a fallout. But I feel like, you know, this is a man who at under any president would be an in, insanely valuable brain to have right. sitting in any part. And do we throw it away because he was all in right. with someone? Right, right. We're all in some way. Right, that's what they're saying. When the book came out, they're like, this is a very bad, uh, you know. Bad title. But he, I think it was 2011, he retired from the military. And Obama, um, he was he was um, placed as the CIA director. So when all the scandal happens, right. he's sitting CIA director for about a year, um, retired from the military, 40, 40 years in the military. Yeah. Now he's the director of the CIA, right? But it's another, it's a good place for him to be. Like, uh, this is someone we need in this position. Yes. So is the country suffering, I'm wondering, because this person's not in a place of power, like not in a place where we could, like, just use this, his brain as a resource for our country? No, I think it I goes back to, I guess, what we've talked about before is you know, if it's about someone's character and their ability to be deceptive, does it then weaken the ability to trust? Right. Well, that's the thing. You know? That's it right there. Because what it's not like he was just an elected. Yeah. He's got shit in his back pocket yeah. that could take down countries. Yeah. You know what I mean? Valuable classified oh, information. Goodness. Okay. Tell me. Tell me. Okay. All so it. This is crazy wild. Oh, I can't wait. (laughs) My favorite part, too. So in May 2012, Jill Kelly, a new character here, right? Yes. A Tampa Bay socialite Uh and a former honorary consul for the Republic of Korea, basically a socialite. Yes. um, A title. She was given this this consul, honorary consul. It was a title she was given for her connections between high-ranking U.S. commanders and South Korean companies and government. Um, okay, so she like no, she's in Tampa. She knows people. She's she's rich. a socialite. She yeah. she entertains all these guys from the U.S. CENTCOM. All these generals, right. they come to her house for dinner. You know, they That's have the, parties, the soirees. Yes, and so she gets to know all these generals, all these people. Like they're friends. She's friendly with this these all these guys. You know, everyone's talking. So oh, we're gonna give you yeah, we're gonna give you honorary consul. So she contacts a local FBI investigator, right, a, an agent who she knew. His name was Frederick Humphreys II, and she complains that she's being cyber stalked. Okay, 
Um, the emails were threatening and were sent oh. under the name Kelly Patrol. Remember her last name's Kelly. Yeah. They also contact contain also in the emails contained a copy of David Petraeus's schedule, which as the current CIA director would be classified right. information. Like why how would this person even have Wait, so she's getting threatened yes. and they're adding this guy's schedule as an attachment. Yes. That's weird. So Jill Kelly and her husband, he's also a doctor, Scott Kelly, were good friends with David Petraeus and his wife, Holly. They'd been to get dinner together, you know, like they'd go up right. to D.C. and visit them, like good, good friends with like, you know, whatever, you know, if they're in town, they're having dinner together, yes. right? So the emails warned Kelly to stay away from David Petraeus. And Jill's husband also received emails which said that he needs to keep an eye on her when she's around David Petraeus. <gasps> so, oh, Yeah. And I know so, you're going to, he's she, basically the email said to the husband, like, oh, you're having dinner with the Petraeuses, watch their hands under the table. They're touch. they're fondling each other under the table when you're not looking. And yeah. then Kelly, the wife, yeah. Mrs. Kelly is getting these emails, like stay away from Petraeus. Yes. But she's like, wait a minute. I'm not near Petraeus. Like uh, on her account, like she's not having an affair. It's right. her defense. That's right. So, so who's she, thinking she sends, that they're canoodling? Okay, so she sends this to the FBI agent. So this set off a chain of events that started with the FBI agent, Humphreys, call, to call for the emails to be investigated by the FBI, especially because of the classified information. Right. And also because the name of the CIA director is in these, and they have his schedule. Like, this is not something that should no. be out there. It's, it's dangerous that people would know where he is. He, You know, he's well, or know what he or, And know what he's up to. Who yes. is he meeting with? Yes. Right. So the FBI, using electronic metadata that pinpointed the times, places, and IP addresses of the emails, identified Paula Broadwell as the sources, a source of Kelly Patrol. Wait, why? Okay. So when they further searched Broadwell's emails, they found romantic and sexually explicit emails between David Petraeus and Broadwell using fake names to create a free webmail account exchanging messages without encryption tools. They would share an email account. With one of them saving a message in the drafts folder, oh, and, and the other person they, would log in, read it, and delete then, it, and, and then, then write s- a new one. Yes. So, there so was that's no, how they communicated. Oh, so that there was actually no no actual sense. email sitting yes. in there. So, so they Broadwell, were having an affair, basically. Right. They're having an affair, and Broadwell is probably like he's probably having an affair with Mrs. Kelly, and I got to get her out because yes, she's probably already jealous of the wife, and now she's thinking but she's, well, well, they broke up. So they had had, they've been having an affair for years. Mm-mm. You know, she's traveling with him. She's in, she's, she's working with him closely. So they started she's having. almost 20 years his, his junior, listen, which honey. is fine. Yeah, listen. But he's in a position of power over her. Yes. He's at that school. She's trying to get info for a book. Come on. Right. So she, they're traveling together. They're working together mm-hmm. and they, he breaks it off eventually like probably i mean who knows what reason i don't think it was something crazy but he breaks it off well she starts to get jealous of oh he's having he she's now jealous of this woman thinking that something's happening with this woman oh so she starts saying the relationship's over well it's over so who does this i don't think it because it doesn't matter the level of education you can be you can act like a crazy teenager she's Acting worse than a crazy teen. Who's who? Who sits there and, and starts but sending the f- threatening emails yeah. to someone? And also, like before you do something like this, don't you think about like what's on the, the other side? Yeah, what's on the other side of that? Maybe she wants to blow things up. Maybe. Okay. So from the summer of 2012, FBI Director Robert Mueller 
and U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder decided to withhold the information until the U.S. presidential election on November 6th. So this is in the summer. So we're going to wait five months. I'm, I'm, you know, not to disrupt the election. Now, I don't know what happened to, uh, you know, Robert Mueller. They're telling him they're going to wait. Why didn't that happen with the Clinton emails four uh-huh. years later? <laughs> like, what happened to the, those emails? Well, maybe, four years maybe later? yeah, no. Well, maybe uh, well, because of this experience, they were. D- did they get any? Did they get any fallout for holding on no. to this performance? No. Oh, because mm-hmm. if they had fallout, then maybe it was like, oh, last time we held him, people yeah. gave us all this, you know, grief about it, and we're not going to. I don't think so. I don't think so. So FBI agents confronted Paula Broadwell on November 2nd, 2012, because now we're in November, right? Um, When Petraeus was interviewed, so they interview her. Oh, no. She admits to having an affair um, and that she sent the emails. And when Petraeus was interviewed by FBI agents in the CIA, his CIA office. (laughs) He's like, nah, he's going to say no. No, he admitted to the affair because they said we found all these emails um and he said he broke it off in june um so right when she started like right after they broke up she started doing this so it seemed like paula was upset about the breakup and was trying to keep oh my god i mean he's probably like i broke up like he he's made it through the entire relationship without getting caught yeah and now it's all over. Yes, yes. So the report that they did after interviewing these two it didn't reach the fbi headquarters until november 5th Uh, Mueller and Holder reviewed it on November 6th, which was Election Day, and decided that it was time to inform the Director of National Intelligence, James R. Clapper, about the discovery of the affair. On November 7th, 2012, James R. Clapper informed Thomas E. Donilon, the U.S. Security Advisor, about the Petraeus affair. The United States Department of Justice also informed the White House Counsel and and about General Allen's correspondence with Kelly, which we will get into, but with Jill Kelly. Um, and on November 7th, 2012, Petraeus tendered his resignation as CIA chief to President Obama per the directive of James Clapper. So really all he did was have an affair. Well, no, no. I'm going to oh. get into this because okay. we're, we're there's one other thing that he did there. So on November 9th, 2012, Petraeus resigned as director of the CIA after admitting having a sexual relationship. And he said, quote, after being married for th- over 37 years, I showed extremely poor judgment by engaging in an extramarital affair. Such behavior is unacceptable, both as a husband and as the leader of an organization, organization such as ours. This afternoon, the president graciously accepted my resignation. On uh, April 23rd, 2015, so a few years later, because he was charged with something, Petraeus pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor charge of mishandling classified materials. He was given a two-year uh. probation and a period, a peri- probation period and a fine of $100,000. So as part of the plea agreement, Petraeus admitted that he gave his lover, Paula Broadwell, who was writing a biography about him, black notebooks that contained sensitive information about official meetings, war strategy, and intelligence oh my capabilities. God. Yeah, and intelligence capabilities, as well as names of covert officers. Oh, my God. According to the court documents, he discussed the black notebooks during an interview that Paula Broadwell taped oh. with Petraeus while she was working on the biography, telling her they are highly classified, some of them. And three three weeks later, he gave her the books. So that was part of it, too. So when they See, went and got her computer yes. and found all that shit, they also found all these tapes and they this took is, everything. They this took everything. This is why pillow talk can be dangerous. This is it. Yeah. This is why it's like this maybe is, being prude is a good yeah. thing. <laughs> well, not being prude, but, Safe. you know, even when he, he resigns, he just says, oh, I had this affair. But this was a years long affair. It wasn't like, oh, I just hooked up with this chick and, and had this right. discretion. Right. This is I'm working with this woman and maybe... You know, he liked her so much that he was like, 
just whatever you want. Here's yeah. all this info. And that she had access to his personal schedule. Yeah. To be able to send. So that's more classified. So then it shows like he can't be trusted. Right. With this information. Yeah. Because the next girl he bangs, if he's head over heel with her for her. Right. What was he going to be whispering in her ear at night? Right. Right. Mm-mm. So the aftermath, let's talk a little bit about Jill Kelly. So during the course of the criminal investigation, government officials disclosed Kelly's name as the victim to the, as a victim of the cyber stalking to the Washington post, oh, along no. with evidentiary emails she provided to the FBI. It was followed by re- revelations that FBI agents searched years of Kelly's personal emails, <gasps> not pertinent or relevant to the case, which was followed by false descriptions of her personal emails by a series of hints to the press about emails between U.S. top commander in Afghanistan, John, General John R. Allen. So it was like fed to the press that sh- this woman Kelly was sending seductive, like sexual emails to another general. Oh, no. The accusation sparked an investigation by the Department of Defense in which the inspector general's report concluded that government leaks and accusations were baseless and the email content was not improper. Oh, no. So now yeah, but her reputation. That's right. So she ended up suing. And I think that case ended up getting dropped. Wow. But she ended up suing them for like going through all of this stuff. She went to the FBI saying for somebody's help. sending me shit, right? And for meanwhile, help. they go through all her email. Yeah. Nonetheless, oh, no, no, the no, false no. accusation stated by government officials made Ke- Jill Kelly a near daily feature of the media, creating a sideshow at her family's expense. Oh, um, my God. November 6, 2013, Kelly penned an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal warning against government surveillance by describing herself as, quote, the human face of the damage that can be caused by government probing into americans personal communications another thing though is that um general allen and general petraeus both wrote letters on behalf of i think her and her sister who were both going through separate custody cases they wrote letters for her like they were friends where they were they were like writing letters to the court so that she could get custody of her kids and her twin sister so i mean you know there's all kinds of people wrapped up in with these guys and these generals are getting too much free time don't you have I something know. else to do? I know you yes. went to her house and had some champagne and caviar, but like, can't you not write her a custody letter, please? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people really need help. This is not one of those people. Oh my God. Some socialite in Tampa. Please. <sighs> anyway. So Petraeus, when Petraeus retired from the military in 2011 to become the CIA director as a four-star general, he receives a $220,000 a year pension. Dang. Okay. He interviewed. In addition with- to his CIA money he was making? I don't know how much pension he's right. got from that, but yes. No, no this I is meant just, like he's just, working as CIA, but he's still collecting this 200 Yes, grand. honey. Yes. Mm. 220000 a year. In the um, wrong career. He interviewed with President-elect Donald Trump in November 2016 as a possible Secretary of State position. He didn't get the job. But the funny thing about that is that Trump would even consider hiring Petraeus when he resigned over classified information right. that went through emails after he railed against Hillary Clinton oh my God. and her private email please, server. Please, Okay, the so man, go fuck The yourself. man is so full of it. <laughs> Stupid ass. So he's and his currently, daughter had email issues. Oh, the whole fucking I, the family. The whole family. So Petraeus is currently a partner in a private equity firm and is a worldwide speaker on the national security issues, and he is still married to his wife, Holly, who, by the way, when I was researching this, I saw one too many fucking articles about these two women being compared in their looks. Oh, of course. Look at his wife. Look at what she looks like. Look no. at it was fucking rough. I'm sorry. But that's but the, the lady's twenty years younger than that's her. That's like the shrapnel she Come gets on. for being involved in this and she had nothing to do with nothing her to do with dick. it. And now now her looks are being scrutinized. Yes. All I hate over our like culture. worldwide. 
you know, and, and, and Broadwell was very fit and like in shape and was like a runner, you know, she's this athlete, like, and she's 20 years, of course, younger. but it's like, there's no, that's can, in completely and yeah. utterly not the point of all of that, you know, mm. but no, that's what this poor woman had to go through. Meanwhile, she's a brilliant she worked in the government as like this high level finance director and she's still married Elizabeth, to him. she should be like goodbye i don't know elizabeth uh, warren play uh put her in charge of the financing for like military for people who come out of the military and need help with financing like she wow. was running a credit bureau for that it was just in, she's a brilliant woman who did not deserve what the fuck happened to her right. okay anyway Paula Broadwell um, has struggled to find her footing since the scandal. Well, I so, mean, she's she brought this on herself. All right. Well, listen, well, we're going to get into that in just a second. But for weeks, reporters camped outside her home in Charlotte where she was trying to restore her marriage. She OK. OK. The fa- Tina just tried to say something. <laughs> she lost her military security clearance. Her promotion from major to lieutenant colonel was revoked when Ooh. the news broke. She withdrew her Ph.D. program and it didn't oh, help no. that she still hasn't received her computers back from the FBI, one of which has her dissertation research on it. Oh, no. Um, she told The New York Times. She should it- have put that in the Google Cloud, man, <laughs> instead of on our Microsoft Word. <laughs> Put that in the cloud. What are you doing? Back up. What is this? (laughs) She told them she was busy. Yeah. She couldn't back up. She told the New York Times in an interview in 2016 that she was told in more than one job interview that while she was qualified, hiring her would be a public relations nightmare. She stays busy in her community. And according, of course, to the New York Times article again from 2016, Paula is on the board of multiple local leadership organizations and a member of the Opera Club. She volunteers for a group that provides safe houses for human trafficking vet- victims and other that and another that helps veterans rehabilitate. She continues to push for women in combat and is an active is in an active group uh, called West Point Women, her alma mater. And she's still married to her husband and living in Charlotte. Here's the thing. Well, and, and there's no wait. Let me say one more thing. The okay. other thing that she's doing, which I thought was really kind of fucking amazing, is since this happened, like even from the beginning. Um, or within, with at least within six months, she was constantly being referred to as mistress, 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 right? Mm. There's no word for that for a man. Right. She's the mistress. Yeah, he why was isn't fucking he? cheating yeah, too. Yeah, why isn't he? Yeah. So she started contacting all of these newspapers from the New York Times all the way down to God knows what, but fuck you, Judge, right? Saying, you better stop. This is not, this word is sexist. He was married too. Right. So he's something to my family. Like he's something to my marriage. I may be a mistress to him, but what is he to, to, to in this yes. relationship? So they started referring to her as like the uh, lover or, uh, you know, like whatever, See, whatever, right. whatever it is, is like they, she's trying to change the lexicon of like how these but women she's are referred right. to. She's yes. Right. So because I thought that I've, was really important. I've, as you were talking about the story, I forgot that she was married too. Yeah. Um, so, but the way she was portrayed in the media is like, man, she's she's powered. Yeah. She breaks up with her lover. Then just go. I mean, I mean, if you don't want to be with your husband, then divorce, divorce the husband. You're going to go after some other lady. People do crazy things. Look yeah. at that woman who was the astronaut. Oh, the my God. woman who wore a diaper so she could drive 24 <laughs> hours to get somewhere. To try to kill yeah. someone. I mean, come on. Yeah. This is, people do, women, uh, men, and men do crazy things. Yeah. But but it's it's true. There was two people in this, but he had a 40-year career he retired from, and her career was ripped out away from her. And she yes, hasn't really she, even and started. And she says yeah. in that article, like, look, I'm the first one to tell you I made a huge mistake. But, like, why is there this difference between how I was portrayed as this, like, power-hungry, like, marriage, you know, how um, homewrecker. homewrecker. Right. And, like, he gets to walk away and, like, yeah, he did get two years probation and, yeah. and a $100,000 fine. And, okay, 
But well, he's but still that, called yeah. in by the government. He still goes and does speeches. He's still, you know, you he's know how still, much money he probably gets per speech. Yeah, being mm. and also being considered for a Secretary of State. Like even as, I know it's Trump, but it's like even that job is like it's an incredible opportunity. Yes. And what is she? She's got to like she's struggling to get a job, and she'd be a public relations nightmare. Why? Right. You know? Come on. No, it's true. They should be treated equally. So anyway, Mm-mm-mm. that's General mm. Petraeus. I love it. Yeah, girl. What a good story. I didn't Thank know you. about the uh, the leaked information. I mean, yeah. what an idiot. Oh my For God. someone who's so smart, what I an know. idiot. I know. It's really fucked up too, right? I mean, I felt like... And imagine, this is this four-star general doing that. You know how many other people in politics, like, what are they doing? I know. Thank God we have this show, guys. But like, <laughs> but even like, how do you... Um, if you're going to have an affair and you're in these kinds of positions, like these, these men and women who are elected and yeah. have power, how do you know you're, you ha- start to have an affair. How do you know that person's not crazy at the end of it? How do you know that person's right. not going to be like a fatal attraction? Or how do you know they're not going to blackmail you? Yeah. Like, how do you know? How do you know they're going to keep it quiet and not tell their best friend who's going to tell their friend and their friend right. until somebody finds out, gets to the paper? Like you are taking risks for hooking up and having yeah. sex with somebody that are be- like you could, you're risking everything. Yeah. Ugh. It makes no sense. Although That's the I mean, passion. I, or maybe it's even being in a position of power. It's like you yeah. deserve all of these things. That or you maybe it's just some people maybe live for the danger of it, for, oh, we mm. might get caught. Or, you know, all of those other things that are wrapped up in yeah. the secrecy of it. I don't know. I know. It's great, though, right? Such a good story. So, <sighs> so good. Thank you. Well, this is episode 40. Episode 40. Can you believe it? It's so Oh my God, we nuts. should have had some 40s during episode 40. <laughs> Poor little as, 40 out. Yeah, as a little celebration. <laughs> For my homies. Yes. I love it. Well, let's see. Are you planning anything big for, like, is 52 the year? Like, is that is that a year of episodes, do you That's think? A, I guess. Okay. My God. Or maybe episode 50. Yeah. The big five O. Do you think we should have an episode that is like viewer question or like listener questions and they send in yes. questions and we just do an episode answering these questions? I think that would be fun too. That'd be nice. We have to get people to send questions. <laughs> yeah. Send us some questions. I mean, we have a Gmail guys. Yes. The muck podcast at gmail.com. Send us questions. Maybe we'll do a whole fun episode, like yes. a bonus, a bonus episode. And send us any kind of people in your community of elected officials that you want us to cover. Yeah. And talk to. We are about to end this recording and get on the phone with somebody that I absolutely love. I can't even believe she's about to be on Lil Muck. It's so exciting. I just peed my pants a little bit. <laughs> so excited. Okay. So let's go. We got to get off. We got to yes. get out of here. All yes. right. I'll see you next week. All right. Bye. bye. If you want to see any photos or take a deeper dive into our stories, please follow the episode notes on our website, themuckpodcast.fireside.fm. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Muck Podcast. To support The Muck Podcast, please visit our Patreon page. We have three levels of support and different goodies for each level. Muckraker, Policy Wonk, or Bleeding Heart. We can't do it without you. Music for The Muck Podcast, written and performed by Sean Doherty. Coming up next week on The Muck Podcast. So the following day after they vetoed all of these, his, his budget cuts, Sanford brought live pigs who subsequently defecated on the House floor into no. the House chamber as a visual protest against, quote, pork projects. I mean, I, 
I don't hate this. I know. It's funny, right? <laughs> yes. Could you imagine the governor walks in? He's got two fucking pigs like walking oh my in. God. What in the hell, man? Talk to this guy and they kind of send him over to the DA to threaten the DA saying, hey, if you don't drop these charges, we're going to like do this public campaign. We're going to it's media, everything about how you're coming against us Please. to try to pressure him. They're so stupid. so stupid. It's like for women that are so bright, they're so dumb. Like, what the fuck? I know. They need to settle <laughs> down.